thorium is always found with rare earths. All right. So you don't have to like thorium. You don't have to want to use thorium as a fuel or use thorium as a alloy or a catalyst or a super high temperature ceramic. And we can talk a little bit more about all those industrial uses of thorium. You don't have to do any of that, but you do have to deal with it because if you like batteries, if you like solar cells, if you like windmills, if you like all this other stuff, electric cars, you need rare earths. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue. On part one of our series with John Kutch, you learned about the history of nuclear, the problems of nuclear, and the public's fear of nuclear. We looked into Plant Vogel in Georgia to understand the elements of building nuclear reactors. And lastly, we took a deep look into uranium to understand what fuels nuclear reactors today. On this episode, you are going to hear part two of this series. You will hear from John Kutch on a very special element on the periodic table called thorium. You will learn about the importance of rare earth elements for the nuclear industry, specifically monazite, for thorium extraction. You will uncover China's approach to thorium-based reactors and see how the nation has become a leader. You will learn what John and his team are doing at the Thorium Energy Alliance. And lastly, you will hear how policy is aiding nuclear energy. What if I told you that one element on the periodic table was used to make ceramics, welding rods, camera lenses, fire brick, heat-resistant paint and metals in the aerospace industry? And oh, what if I told you that this element was the key to clean energy in our world through nuclear? Enter thorium, the 90th element on the periodic table located on the very bottom row. This bottom row is known as the actinine series and all of its elements are radioactive. Today, all of the nuclear reactors in the world are powered by uranium. But as history has shown, uranium is not the best fuel source. But an element just two spots to the left of uranium on the periodic table is. Some of the problems seen with nuclear reactors in the past have been because of a failure in the cooling system. And with thorium, these problems would be eradicated. I am no chemist, and I couldn't give you a lecture on chemistry but I do understand the chemical nature of thorium thanks to John. The reason that the problems of overheating would be eradicated is because thorium is not fissile, which means its nuclei will not split apart and explode, which is what leads to overheating in these reactors, as we have seen in the past with Fukushima, Chernobyl, and Three Mile Island. Thorium is also three times more abundant in nature than uranium. It is more efficient, which makes it more environmentally friendly, and it is estimated that one ton of thorium can produce as much energy as 35 tons of uranium. So why is this important? Well, this translates to a lot less waste. Our guest on the Green Hour today is someone who has dedicated his life to finding cleaner and more efficient methods to energy through nuclear, specifically using thorium. John Kutch is the executive director for the Thorium Energy Alliance, a non-governmental, non-profit, 501c3 educational organization based in the United States, which seeks to promote energy security to the world through the use of thorium as a fuel source. He has spent 24 years developing materials, mechanisms, and products for industrial energy and medical clients. He is noted for leading the technical design of all the variations on the integral molten salt reactor. And he is here today to share all about thorium. When you have, you have uranium-235, which is what's being used for, for most, I mean, not even most, all of the, the commercial applications in the world today. Um, but and what, what we'll talk about now is the element of the future that I would say that's cleaner um, and that 
that is more efficient and that's more plentiful um, in our world than this U-235, and that is thorium. So thorium is this very unique element on the periodic table um, that, I mean, you have devoted your entire career towards. So could you give us a just a brief um, overview of what thorium is, um, where it's found, and um, kind of what is it used for? So uh, thorium, what got me into this whole nuclear business, uh, thorium uh, is the 90th element in the periodic table, big fat atom, you know, and it's fertile. It's not fizzled. So if you get too much uranium, even natural uranium in one room, <laughs> you're going to have some weirdness happen. Things will start getting hot, you know. Uh, but you could have millions of pounds of thorium in one room and nothing's going to happen because it's an alpha emitter. It's fertile, which means it's big and fat and plump, but it's not fizzle. It won't fission on its own. It needs an external neutron source to actually fission. So you never, you very rarely hear about a reactor that would just use thorium as a fuel. You'd always use thorium with something else. But that something else could be really important, like spent nuclear fuel, uh, maybe a little bit of uranium, uh, some plutonium, and it might be a way for us to reduce the stockpiles of weapons-grade materials or just uh, the amount of what people consider waste. So that right there is a good reason to use thorium. The other reasons are thorium is very easy to handle because it's just an alpha emitter. Uh, it's uh, if you wear gloves, you know, that the amount of shielding you need for that is very, very little. You know, a piece of tissue could block the uh, alpha emissions from, from natural thorium. Thorium doesn't need to be enriched. Thorium is good to go as is. So that huge effort of using centrifuges and electricity to enrich uranium, you don't need that. Thorium is usable as is. Uh, Thorium is uh, also non-proliferating. I mean, there's some people out there that, you know, make this crazy argument that if you built a $100 billion enrichment facility and milked the thorium and did all these things, you could make a bomb out of it. <laughs> but no, but if that was so easy, uh, you would see them. So I think there's a 75-year history of people not using thorium for bombs for a very specific reason. That it is, it, it's just, on the face of it, it is absolutely not worth it. You know, there's plenty of uranium in the world. There's plenty of plutonium floating around these days. There's a lot better, cheaper, easier ways to make a bomb than to spend $100 billion, you know, uh, and try and extract, uh, you know, uranium-233 from a thorium. It's, it's just ridiculous. So it's very non-proliferating. Right, so you the idea that thorium could be the source of proliferation material is a non-starter. Anybody who understands proliferation issues understands it. You're not going to build a nuclear weapon from U-233. You 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 know it'd be a suicide mission to build uh, uh, a nuclear weapon from from that or from U-232. The weapon would almost for sure blow up in your hands. It would kill the people building it. It's a self solving problem. You're not going to make weapons from thorium. So uh, that is a huge beneficial element to thorium. And finally, and probably most importantly, thorium is always found with rare earths. All right. So you don't have to like thorium. You don't have to want to use thorium as a fuel or use thorium as a alloy or a catalyst or a super high temperature ceramic. And we can talk a little bit more about all those industrial uses of thorium. You don't have to do any of that, but you do have to deal with it. Because if you like batteries, if you like solar cells, if you like windmills, if you like all this other stuff, electric cars, you need rare earths. You know, you need rare earths and you need phosphor for, uh, for your farming because you got 8 billion people on the planet. They need to eat. And where do you get phosphor from? You get it from phosphor minerals. Where do you get rare earths from? You get rare earths from phosphor mi minerals, right? Where do you get thorium from? Same place. 
So if you want to keep making fertilizer and you keep wanting to extract critical materials, you better start figuring out a way to deal with thorium, right? And uh, so I think there's a vast and huge opportunity to use thorium, not just as a nuclear fuel, but uh, as a critical material. And we could talk more about that if you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to go into, um, you know, the rare earth element aspect of this. And, you know, you find thorium in monazite is the, the rare earth element that you find thorium in. Um, and, you know, this is commonly mined in, in placer deposits, which are mass, masses of loose sediment, mainly consisting of sand. And this is where this this rare earth element is found. So, again, I'll ask you, what is monazite and, you know, how are we, I mean, not even how are we, how is the world mining monazite to capture thorium? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> nobody on earth is mining monazite. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a waste product, byproduct, because of the thorium and uranium that you find in it. And monazite's not the only stuff. I mean, so you got apatite, basicite, xenotime, monazite. I mean, there's a whole family of phosphate minerals that that have uh, very good, heavy rare earths. And uh, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, you get a lot of thorium uh, along with those rare earths, and you get a lot of uranium also in some of them. Uh, so like monazite, if we continue to use that as an example, you're right. Uh, that's often called a placer material because old, for instance, in Virginia, just 50 miles south of the United States Capitol, you have uh, old, ancient, prehistoric beaches, all right? And those beaches were full of <clears throat> monazite and titanium. And so one of the greatest titanium mines in the world, owned by Aluka, had to shut down because they were getting titanium, but they were also getting literal mountains of monazite. And we worked with them for years to try and get a reasonable policy out of the United States government for how to deal with monazite. Uh, the beaches of Brazil are covered in black monazite. The beaches of India are covered in black monazite. But nobody outside of China wants to deal with it because they are looking, and this always fascinates me, uh, they're always looking for the U.S. to lead on this. So Canada could have a huge rare earths industry. Brazil India, India is the obvious one. They've got more rare earths than anywhere on planet Earth. Uh, and yet they don't because the USA is held up to this day as the gold standard. And yet we equivocate and we never, we never actually uh, create any policy or any direction on how to deal with this. So you would, here's an interesting thing. You would never, ever need a rare earth mine. There's a mine in California called MP Materials, and uh, it's pointless. Uh, it, it's a bad deposit. It doesn't have heavy rare earths. It still has thorium that they have to deal with at least a little bit, uh, and it doesn't give us what we need. We need heavy rare earths, and we need metals, right? And the only thing we can get out of that mine in California at the moment is uh, oxides. And they keep saying they're going to try and make magnets, but you know, don't hold your breath. So we need a metal refinery in this country, but we don't need a rare earth mine, right? The one phosphate facility in Florida, you know, so the United States gets a huge amount of its phosphate fertilizer from Florida. But those phosphate mines throw away all their monazite <laughs> They throw away all their rare earths because why? Because they have a lot of thorium and uranium tied up into it. And if you look online and you look for Florida radioactive sinkhole, you'll see why. Because they, they pile up all this uh, rare earth material in tailings ponds because they don't want to deal with it. But 
Florida has sinkholes, and once in a while a sinkhole opens up underneath these uh, tailings, and all of a sudden all this lightly, mildly radioactive stuff goes shooting down into the ground, and you know it's a it's just a big mess. Same thing with there's iron mines in Minnesota that create rare earths. There's titanium mines that create rare earths. You know, so there's an iron mine in Missouri that creates rare earths and cobalt. So, I mean, we don't have a lack of rare earths. I mean, people are always surprised about that. We actually produce thousands and thousands of tons of rare earth minerals every year in the United States, enough for the whole world, including China. But we refuse to work with them because we can't bring ourselves to deal with the thorium and uranium that comes out of the out of processing rare earth metals. So what do we do? We do what I think is a stupid, short-sighted, racist thing. We say, hey, there's some dumb yellow people over in China, and they're willing to stand up to their knees in nitric acid and digest and process all these rare earths into my iPhone and my Tesla and every other piece of junk that we want in the West, and we'll put the environmental burden on them. And it doesn't have to be like that. There's plenty of very clean, energy-efficient ways to create rare earth metal, and that's all that matters, metal, not oxides, not anything else. Emma from, you know, from GreenMet will tell you that. You know, the only way we're going to get our windmills and our Teslas and our batteries and our solar cells is if we start being grown-ups and dealing with the things that come with that. And we advocate very strongly at Thorium Energy Alliance for a thing called a Thorium Bank or a Thorium Strategic Reserve because we don't want to throw it away because it's the most valuable material in the universe and maybe it'll take a future generation of smarter people to understand that. So in the meantime, we want to store it. And uh, we don't want to dispose of it. We don't want to denature it. We don't want to put it in a 6,000-foot deep hole in the ground. We want to store the thorium and use it for industrial purposes, like alloys, magnets, near-superconducting wire, the highest temperature ceramics in the universe, uh, catalysts uh, like uh, Dow and W.R. Grace and Solvay and Rhodia. They all used to make thorium-based materials up until the 90s, and we don't do that anymore. And it's a, it's a terribly misguided policy for why we don't do it. Uh, but we're never going to have a rare earth industry in the West until we have a, a thorium policy in the West. That's a lot right, of talking. Right. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's great. It's great. <laughs> you're you're going to have to like hold up little cards for me. That are, like <laughs> a countdown. Three, two, one. You're, like wrap it up. You have to like play the Oscar music for me. It's like, okay, right. You know. Dim the lights. Dim the lights a little yeah, bit. <laughs> yeah, start flashing them. The walk-off music. Get out of here. <laughs> so I want to I want to touch on China very quickly, and then sure. we'll get into the Thorium Energy Alliance. So, you know, as you mentioned – China, I, I really respect a lot of the things China does policy-wise and how they are you know, really leading the way in a lot of different areas. I mean, China is leading the way in thorium um, nuclear reactors. Um, they are, you know, obviously they have a stronghold on the REE market. We talked about that last episode. Um, and even, again, through research, I found that Bill Gates um, has, has invested heavily in next-gen nuclear Yep. He invests in the company TerraPower, um, which is, again, working on a next-gen nuclear reactor. Um, and they were building a test facility um, in China, mm-hmm. but it was put on hold um, by the Trump administration um, because and, – and they put a lock on um, the Gates Foundation of going forward with this yep. uh, because of, you know, we don't agree with China, I guess, in a lot of ways in international trade. And we don't, um, I guess the U.S. Or, or that administration in particular, didn't want to fund China to, you know, have innovations like um, thorium nuclear reactors, which yep. to me, like I understand a lot of a lot of people's hesitancies to to work with China. 
mean, there's different elements, but something like this, I mean, China, if they're leading the way in, in these thorium reactors, then why don't we try to help them out? And why don't we try to, you know, they're, they're going to build this out. Let's see if it works and let's see if we can, you know, build this out in the States as well. So, um, you know, China's doing a lot of stuff. Um, they, they, you know, they're leading the way in a, in a lot of different categories. Um, but, you know, we, we really need to, in the, in the, in the West, you know, look at what they're doing and find ways to, to do similar things. So all that to say, China's doing a lot of, a lot of things um, that we are not. Um, but now let's talk about the, the Thorium Energy Alliance and the work that you are doing. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what the Thorium Alliance is? Um, you've mentioned you know, how it came to be in, in 2006, 2007. But what is the Thorium Energy Alliance and what is the work that you are doing today? Yeah, so Thorium Energy Alliance is a 501c3 educational advocacy organization, nonprofit, tax deductible. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we are, you know, we don't, we don't really uh, take any government money. Uh, we've been privately funded. And uh, it, uh, these days we spend uh, most of our time advocating for uh, a resurgence of uh, thorium as a, a critical material, uh, as I said, in advanced alloys, ceramics, catalysts, lighting, surfaces, coatings, uh, things like that. Nuclear medicine, you're not going to, a lot of nuclear medicines start out in thorium, but that's a very, you know, obviously a very tiny use compared to alloys, perhaps. Um, <clears throat> you know, so there's a lot of stuff we could do with uh, thorium. I think there's a lot of uh, companies that have picked up the mantle of fighting for thorium nuclear. So companies like Copenhagen Atomics and Thorcon, and even Terra Power, Bill Gates's company, and uh, um, uh, there's a company called Curio. Uh, there's a group down at Abilene University down in Texas with Texas A&M and University of Texas and uh, Georgia Tech uh, working with a company called Natura and the Next Lab, and uh, they have thorium needs. There's a great company called Clean Core Thorium Energy that's trying to develop new solid fuel thorium-based nuclear for can-do reactors. That's a long way of saying there's a there's several companies out there that advocate for thorium nuclear fuel. Great, you know, and so we feel like we need to focus as Thorium Energy Alliance on going to Washington, D.C. and advocating and educating for policies. Right now, thorium is excluded specifically by name from getting federal funding and federal research. And it's, uh, it's very unfortunate that you know, it's a, it's a catch 22, right? So they say, well, no one uses thorium today. And we say, well, we want to do research in it. And they say, well, no one uses it. And they say, well, we would use it if, if we could do some research in it. It's like, well, we won't fund that research because no one uses it. And we wind up saying, well, you know, this is quite a, you know, a, you know, a circular argument. They don't use it because you don't fund it, and you don't fund it because they don't use it. So we've been funding a lot of it ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, really exciting stuff like using thorium uh, as a catalyst to help create hydrogen from water, you know, through electrolysis. And uh, uh, like I said, the Russians uh, had done a tremendous amount of work in superconductivity using thorium. We still use thorium and magnetrons and radar and welding wire. So we want to expand that back into catalytic surfaces for making plastics, you know, much more efficiently uh, than, than we do today, you know, saving greenhouse gases and <clears throat> using materials more efficiently. So that's the sort of thing that, you know, policies, Thorium Energy Alliance could get some policies changed in the Department of Energy and EPA that would allow research into thorium. Uh, that would be a big deal to us and the world. And if we could get uh, some Department of Energy and Department of Commerce and Department, you know, of the Environment, uh, you know, uh, funding for using, you know, uh, thorium and 
you know, we would say we'd clean up all these tailings ponds, you know, all this monazite you were talking about. That's considered a waste, right? And yet we know that monazite has fertilizer in it, that monazite has super critical materials in it. You know, it's just it's also, <clears throat> it's also got thorium in it. So why can't we do research on that? So it's it's a uh, you know we are <clears throat> we're doing our best to change policy and to educate staffers and policymakers about the damage that their policy is doing to American competitiveness and our national security. And uh, and while we're doing that, we're also trying to bring back and revive thorium-based technologies like lighting, lenses, nuclear medicine, you know. So that that's that's the main goals of the Thorium Energy Alliance right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm touching back on what you said, um, you know, what you're trying to do is, is bring policy so you can get funding. You know, you're funding a lot of this yourself through your organization right now. I mean, we just talked on China and in China, the reason that they've been able to, you know, become a catalyst in a lot of these industries is they commit so much money every year to R&D. Mm-hmm. They commit billions of dollars every year to R&D. Um, so yep. they're able to do that. So the next thing I would ask you is um, we haven't talked on this yet, but I noticed that one of the goals of, of the Thorium Energy Alliance is to restart a research reactor program and commercialize the molten salt reactor and the supply chain infrastructure behind it. So I think it's very important to talk about these molten salt reactors because a lot of what we've talked about is these water-based reactors. Um, So could we dive in a little bit to what a molten salt reactor is, um, why it's important, and why um, the work that you're doing, why are you pushing so hard to restart this program in the U.S.? Yeah, the... the the thing that was hugely attractive to me about molten salt reactors was that we built them, right? We built several molten salt reactors, the most famous one being the molten salt reactor experiment at Oak Ridge. And we built them, we ran them, they ran well. You know, there was no, there's a myth out there about corrosion. There was no corrosion issues. They're, they're super well managed with redox control. These were the best reactor designers and operators I've ever seen or read about in my life. And unfortunately, they're very old now and we're losing them. But that was it. The fact that we had built and ran these, so they were real. It wasn't a paper reactor. It wasn't a proposal. It wasn't a PowerPoint presentation. You could actually go to Oak Ridge and see it. That's the, It's there, you know. And, uh, you know, there was the aircraft reactor, which ran... There were some other things that ran. So I I and many others said, this isn't an experiment. The experiment was done and proven. And, uh, and so that's why we're so passionate about this in terms of getting uh, these reactors up and running. So next lab at Abilene Christian University is my great hope for the West, you know, United States of America to get a reactor running. They're they're pretty close to getting a license. You know, that's relative, right? You know, <laughs> licenses aren't exactly easy to come by even for research reactors. And they are, you know, they are going to do a modest size reactor in the 2 megawatt range and uh you know, uh that would be a big leap forward because that's about what the Chinese have now. So at least we would catch up to the Chinese research reactor. Uh, the Chinese are still far ahead in investment, though. As you said, they've invested a billion dollars over the last 10 years. And they have hundreds of people uh, working on their reactor system. They built a huge facility out in the Gobi Desert to test these reactors. They've got a whole supply chain set up to make the special uh, stainless steel metals, the special graphite, the special salts, the special pumps and valves needed. You know, so they've they've done what they've they've built the bottom of the pyramid, right? So, you know, what I get afraid of is that in the West we make one and one and one. You know, we never make ten of something. 
you know, whereas China today is, you know, they're not building a nuclear graphite facility just to make one reactor. You know, they're not building an industrial salt facility just to build one reactor. They're putting the things in place that they need to make 100 reactors a year. And one of the things that makes these molten salt reactors and reactors like them so safe is that they would, they're small, right? They're, you know, they're, they're the size of like, let's say a 40 foot shipping container. They're very small. They can fit on the back of a truck. And when you do that, you can make them in a factory. And when you make them in a factory, you're not making them out in the open. You're not getting dust on them. Birds aren't landing on them. (laughs) You know, you're making them in a factory in a clean environment. All the people are making them the same same way each day. So there's a learning curve. There's economies of scale. So the price goes way, way down. So, I mean, learning goes up. You know, the cost of materials and the cost of fabrication get better and better and better and go way down. And the safety goes up because if you make them in a factory, you make them all the same way, it, the, the last one will be safer than the first one. And so that's why we're so adamant and spent the last 15 years of our lives pursuing the molten salt reactor, pursuing factory-built reactors, pursuing these small, modular, inherently safe, super cost-effective reactor systems, because that's the only way we're going to create fossil-free energy at scale. Right. Right. So touching on that and kind of bouncing off of that, I I had seen in the news that um, recently there was an MOU signed between the Thorium Energy Alliance and the government of El Salvador. So um, could you talk a little bit about that and then talk a little bit about some of the other big projects that y'all are doing um, at the Thorium Energy Alliance? Sure. I mean, that is that is a big opportunity there to uh, help the country of El Salvador. So El Salvador is just a, a great example of, you know, the, the leadership there is very forward thinking. Uh, because they're 83% renewable as a country, right? So you, you would be hard-pressed to find any other country on Earth with that much renewable energy. They have uh, built out almost all the hydro they can build out, right? They have geothermal, so they have a tremendous amount of geothermal energy. They can maybe deploy a little bit more geothermal. They've got a lot of solar. The rest of their energy comes from natural gas and a little bit of what's called reciprocating energy, which is just basically big giant train engines and ship engines running on bunker oil, you know, basically giant glorified generators. So they're 83% renewable. Every country, you know, every country in the world hopes that they could get to that point in, in the next 30 years. They're there today, and yet they realize that's it. We're not going to have, that's all the hydro. That's all the geothermal. You know, that's all the solar we want to deploy because we're starting to cover up valuable farmland with solar. Uh, Wind, you know, wind has limited opportunities there. Even offshore wind has limited opportunities there. So they're not going to build, they're there. They're at 83%. Maybe they could get to 85%, but they are at the max of the amount of energy they can use today. And if they want electric cars and electric stoves, and more refrigeration and more air conditioning. It's hot. You know, it's 95 degrees there today, and it's March. You know, it's not getting colder. (laughs) And so they want to live like Americans live, right? And they want their Teslas and Chevy Volts, you know, and they want air conditioning, and they want their hospitals to be on 24 hours a day, you know, and they, they like it when their streetlights work all day and all night, you know, so they know the only way that they can double or triple the amount of energy is if they go with nuclear. And they know that the that thorium is the right fuel for a future nuclear rollout. And advanced reactors are the right size. You know, advanced reactors are generally smaller. Physically, they're the size of shipping containers. And 
output is, you know, 100 megawatts thermal per hour, which would translate to about 40, you know, 45 megawatts electric if you want to make electric with that. But if, what if you want to desalinate water or move water or treat water? That's a big issue for El Salvador, you know, the, so they could just use that heat energy directly. So they know they want advanced reactors, inherently safe reactors built in a factory that are cost effective and use the safest fuel source, which would be uh, majority thorium fuel. And, uh, and that would allow, you know, it's a little bit of a build it and they will come. You know, if they suddenly double and triple and maybe quadruple the amount of energy available to their citizens, now you got factories that run fossil free, you know, maybe they cut the cost of energy in half. So now you maybe get data centers. You know, they, they kind of like this crypto mining down there. So it's like maybe they do some crypto mining, but maybe the crypto mining leads to data centers. Uh, they could sell power to their neighboring countries. You know, so they're, it's, a, it's, it's a super exciting prospect to help roll out thorium-based nuclear energy for a developing country. And, you know, their name El Salvador means the savior. I'm like, you know, you guys could be the savior of the world. You know, you could show the world how to save save itself. 83% renewable, and yet you still went with nuclear. And, and, you know, that's the greatest example to any environmentalist out there. Even at 83%, that's it. That's all you're going to get. That's as much as you can deploy. And, uh, and so if you want the rest to be fossil free, you better put on your big boy pants and go with nuclear because that's the only thing that can scale. And uh, so that's a super exciting project for us. And uh, it can happen very quickly because they're their own sovereign country and they're, they're doing the right things with the IAEA and they're getting all the international agreements in place. So they're playing by all the rules. They're doing all the right things. And uh, I, but I think because they are a startup nation, they could deploy new advanced nuclear in the next few years. You know, a lot of times you hear about people not deploying nuclear till the mid 2030s, and it drives me crazy. You know, so the idea that we can start deploying nuclear in the next two to three years instead of the next two to three decades uh, is music to my ears. Probably the other biggest thing we're doing right now. Uh, outside of the policy world, you know, we we still go to Washington D.C. all the time and try and do edu. You know, we're an educational advocacy, so we we educate staffers about policy that would help rare earths, critical materials, nuclear power, thorium. But in terms of a discrete project, we're working with. Uh, companies like GreenMet, like Emma, who you had, and we're working with them to create a domestic rare earth metal and magnets supply chain, right? And that might sound like splitting hairs, but it's not. You know, we we don't need rare earths. Uh, we need rare earth refining, and we don't do any refining anywhere on planet Earth outside of China, right? There's some tiny, tiny little groups that do a tiny little bit of metallics and magnets outside of China, but it's vanishingly small. You know, when it comes to metals and magnets, China is 99% of the, the market. And so if we can solve for rare earths and critical materials, that automatically means we solve for thorium. And I think I strongly believe if you go to our website, thoriumenergyalliance.com, and go to the encyclopedia and look under uses, the amount of uses, you know, that thorium has would blow people's minds. You know, the first Gemini spacecraft were made with MagThor. You know, the uh, some of the first uh, uh, Phantom aircraft were made with, uh, with MagThor. You know, almost all the initial natural gas ethylene facilities used thorium catalysts to, to crack uh, natural gas and to do it efficiently and cleanly. So, I mean, we need to bring that back. 
and uh, so those are the those are the the things we're doing as the Thorium Energy Alliance. You know that El Salvador helping El Salvador deploy new nuclear and. I should say, and you can clip this out of your show or cut for time, but one thing we're doing as an interstitial uh, mode to molten salt reactor is molten salt thermal storage. So there's a lot of uh, stuff called inrush energy, like the sun comes out from behind the clouds, and all of a sudden there's 500 megawatts of solar power coming online. Well, they don't know what to do with that today, so they throw it away. They they, they burn it, and uh, so when power is intermittent and you don't know when it's going to come, you know, the wind starts blowing at 3 a.m., and all of a sudden there's 200 megawatts they don't know what to do with. Right now they throw it away. What we could do is have it, you know, very simply as a very large bucket, swimming pool of molten salt, and we can heat that salt with otherwise thrown away energy and then when we need it we can pull that energy back out of the salt and so that's a non-nuclear application but here's the secret if you build a giant pool of 600 degrees celsius salt then you're learning how to make big pools of salt you're learning how to make pumps you're learning how to make valves and fittings you're learning how to put a lot of energy into salt and take a lot of energy out of the salt so you're learning how to operate a salt-based system. And so I can work with renewables and I can work with intermittent energy to help balance the load with my salt storage. And what I get in return is I get a supply chain of people who build pumps and valves and supply salt. And so I think thermal salt batteries are the stepping stone and the bridge to uh, molten salt nuclear energy. Yeah, I would say so three points right there. First, with El Salvador, you know, they say complacency is the enemy of progress. And what's interesting is El Salvador, they're at 83 percent, but they're saying, no, we need to keep going. We're not going to be complacent. And that that to me is what every country should do. I feel like in the U.S. we become complacent at times. um, And that's why we've kind of lost our edge in international trade in, in some aspects. Secondly, Green Med is doing incredible work. Um, that's very exciting that that you are working with them. And Emma, Emma's incredible. Um, Emma yeah. might be president one day. She's she, she's very very impressive person. Um, and lastly, with with the salt pools and the storage, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that is a stepping stone in the right direction. I mean, you're talking about building out um, people and building out skills. So that when we're ready to build out these molten salt reactors, now people have the skills and the aptitude to actually do these things. And, you know, I feel like for me, what you're saying, nobody should have any reservation against doing that kind of project. And if you say, hey, let's do this project and this can be, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing quote unquote dangerous. This this is just a project we can do. And let's, let me show you how this works. Um, It's it's literally... (laughs) Like the molten salt storage, I'm such a fan of because, like, you can the salt we would use in it is called solar salt, and it's you could literally eat it. You know, it's the same sort of salt that you make beef jerky. You know, it's the same salt they, you know, it's the same kind of salt. You know, my chemist friends will freak out, but it's the same kind of salt you put on meat to keep it nice and pink. So when you go in the store, you don't see a bunch of gray hamburger meat, you know. So it's, it's a, it's a nitrate salt and it's, it's not the highest temperature salt, but it's cheap to make. It's very, very stable. It's easy to keep. Uh, you know, you can use it for literally millions of years. And when, when, uh, when you make it big, so we were just talking about this yesterday. You can store uh, fifteen thousand megawatt hours of thermal energy for about twenty three hundred bucks a megawatt hour. If you tried to store that same amount of energy in a Tesla battery, you'd be talking about millions and millions of dollars a megawatt, right? So you're talking about energy storage at scale, the sort of energy storage that could get an entire town overnight, you know, from sundown to sunup, you know, or an entire town to get through, you know, I'm in Chicago, it gets pretty dark here in the winter, right? 
and the windmills don't like to blow in ice storms. So if you need to go 10, 20 hours without wind and solar, you know, then why not use thermal energy storage? Because you can do that. I could store 15,000 megawatt hours of thermal energy at 580 degrees Celsius. And I can store that energy for weeks and months at a time, you know, and I can deploy it when it's needed. And, uh, and so it's cost effective. It would enable my industry that I like, and it would also enable renewables. Because right now, renewables have a intermittency problem. The sun is always going to go down at night. The wind is always going to stop blowing. And electronic batteries, the kind that you find in your car, are not cost effective. And what do they provide? A couple minutes of, uh, you know, it's like it's like the battery backups I have on the floor in front of me for my computer. You know, what are the, you know, they can't even keep my computer running for more than a half hour. You know, yeah. so how are they going to keep your, you know, whole town running, your emergency rooms, you know, your street lights, your furnace, you know. So let's go. Let's go with the energy system that uh, all boats rise with that tide. So I'm a big fan of thermal molten salt energy storage as a, as a stepping stone to the future. Yeah, I mean, it, make, it makes perfect sense. So, John, the final segment that I want to hit here and then we'll, we'll be done is policy on nuclear energy. And there's there's really three big um, pieces of policy that I want to talk about. The first is um, the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. Um, this was, in 2020, the, the U.S. Department of Energy started a project called the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, which is funding $230 million into next-gen nuclear. So as far as what you're doing with the Thorium Energy Alliance, how important is this policy and how important is this, you know, for the nuclear industry in the U.S. as a whole? Uh, it's very important, but I wish it was more important. I'm afraid that they've made it incredibly expensive and difficult to do any sort of nuclear reactor development. So everything is done on teeny tiny little discrete scales. And the kind of funding, you know, you can take it with a, you can decide John has his favorite reactor and doesn't like other people, you know, <laughs> but, but I, I think a lot of the money from the, from that advanced reactor demonstration, um, might not be going to the kind of reactors that we're actually going to need in the future. And uh, I don't know if that is, uh, that is something that policy could change. We could, we could actually decide that we're going to, you know, push our chips in. Uh, but, you know, the big thing around Washington, D.C. is no one wants to pick winners or losers. And here's the deal. If, uh, the the research into advanced reactors, truly advanced reactors, not light water reactors, not boiling water reactors, and I'm afraid they're getting some of that money, but truly advanced reactors, uh, true generation four reactors, it would be money well spent. But if nothing else, if you don't want to spend money, then at least get out of our way. And the, the astounding amount of regulatory burden, which, does, you know, if it made people safer, if it made things cheaper and better and run longer and more stable and kept supply chains going, be all for it. Nobody doesn't want that. But there is a literal phenomena there that they play on that, if you can inspect things to death, right, there's an actual phenomena where, you know, you can, if you keep looking at it, you know, the watch, the watch pot doesn't boil. You know, if you keep pulling the lid off the pot, the water can never get hot enough to boil. And that's right. what's happening a lot, right? And uh, uh, so, so a, a big part of what we need isn't always money. Money's great. And keeping 
universities and national labs alive is great. But what the commercial part of the business needs is a reasonable uh, regulatory regime. And, and, uh, and with that, we could still stay in the game. You know, otherwise, the most advanced reactor systems in the world are going to be in China and Russia and uh, Egypt and Turkey and uh, Indonesia and Malaysia and El Salvador. And just today, just an hour ago, right before we got on this call, uh, Nicaragua just made a deal with Ross Adam, you know, the Russian nuclear energy company. So I think you can see where I'm going, you know. Right. It's not that nuclear isn't economic. It's just not economic in the West. You know, Korea is the great, great hope for Western merchant class fleets. You know, if we could build 50 Korean reactors in the United States, we'd meet all of our energy. Everyone's wondering, like, how do we reach these 2030 goals, these 2050 goals? It's like, I'll tell you how. Build 100 new Korean reactors. You'll reach them like that. Because we hmm. did it once before. We built 144 reactors from 1968 to 1988. So we know how to do it. And we know how to do it on time and ahead of budget and all that stuff. You know, it's hmm. you know, this is not something that's impossible. It's it was done in the United Arab Emirates. The United Arab Emirates, you know. Come on, USA. Come on, right. Europe. Put your, you know, get your groove back and start doing things, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it it's definitely frustrating to see, you know, U.S. has all the resources, all the talent in the world, but it's almost like we're sitting on our hands a lot of the time and just letting other, other places just take the opportunity and we just sit back. Um the other two, and, and you, you can touch on these a little bit. We don't have to dive in very very much if you don't want to. But the other two pieces of policy that um, you know are pushing funds um, in, in this direction is the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. So, you know, just talking high level, um, the, the, IR, the IRA um, is, you know, providing, you know, credits for for you know, existing nuclear plants and the bipartisan infrastructure law has this thing called the civil nuclear credit program, uh, $6 billion strategic investment um, to help preserve the existing U S reactor fleet and save thousands of high paying jobs across the country. So these two things, you know, are working um, with the nuclear industry as well. And, you know, from your perspective, I mean, we, we just talked about the advanced reactor demonstration program, but, are these going to be helpful as well? Or are these kind of targeting that, that old way of thinking um, as well? Uh, you know, the money goes towards keeping the fleet alive, which is super critical. I mean, we still have 93, give or take, you know, reactors. I plant Vogels coming online. Plant Vogel three and four, so I, f I forget the exact number, but you know it's ninety three reactors are still working in the United States, and maybe Holtec can access some of that money to bring the Palisades reactor back online in Michigan. Uh, we uh, hopefully we can keep Diablo Canyon running for another twenty or forty years. Well, that's great. That's good money. That's super well spent money. Some of that money also goes towards researching how nuclear can be part of the hydrogen economy. Uh, so there's there's some really very good and interesting things there uh, uh, to enable you know to enable uh, full capacity use of nuclear. Uh, so that's that's good, and so that, so that money is is uh, is uh, good, but that that is. Uh, that's not the kind of money or policies we need uh, to deploy new nuclear. Mm. You know, even if you want to build more merchant class stuff, even if somebody said, hey, I want to build 
you know, there was a time when Duke Energy wanted to build eight new nuclear reactors in Texas and get rid of all the coal facilities down there. Texas burns more coal than any other state in the nation, but they import it all. So it's interesting. Texas has a real, real issue there. And, uh, and as we found out, coal plants that aren't, uh, you know, insulated for winter weather, you think, how can a coal plant shut down? Well, you know, even Texas has bad enough winters that, you know, the coal plants don't work very well. So, you know, imagine if they provide enough money and resources for Texas to build eight new nuclear power plants. You know, you'd, you'd have a very, very clean economy down there because they've got a lot of solar. They got a lot of wind. You know, it's the wind, you know, it's the highest wind deployment, I believe, of any state. So, I mean, uh, that's a sort of transformational thing that we're missing out on. And yeah. that's, that's, so that money is good. It's nothing compared to what solar and wind are going to get, believe me. But, you know, it's going to keep the fleet alive. It'll keep some people employed. It'll keep some research institutions going. Uh, I, I certainly am glad it's there. But, you know, if we had, if we had better policies, you know, uh, we, could, uh, we could be more forward-thinking. You're right. As a country, uh, we've uh, we've lost our our ability to forward think because we we don't use any more energy today than we did in the seventies, you know. So we just got more efficient and we deindustrialized. So as we lost our factories and we got more efficient, even though we all use way more electricity individually, you know, getting rid of plants and getting rid of uh, waste. We we flatlined, you know. So we the amount of electricity is essentially flat. But yeah. we're suddenly deciding we don't want to cook with gas. We're suddenly deciding we want to heat our houses with heat pumps and cool our houses with heat pumps and plug in, you know, a hundred million electric cars. Well, you're not going to do that with wind and solar, baby. I'm telling you, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's right. just not going to happen. But you cannot the you cannot. Uh, have more than, I mean, the general rule of thumb is you just, you cannot have that much intermittent power on the grid. And mm-hmm. this idea of micro power, this idea of, of uh, you know, distributed energy sounds nice until you realize, you know, who gets the distribution? Uh, the rich and the well-off can afford stable renewable energy. If you're living in a bad part of Chicago, you're not plugging in your electric car at night because you won't yeah. have it in the morning, right? right? If you're a farmer, you're not planting, you know, seed corn with an electric-powered tractor. You know, you just aren't, okay? You're not, you know, so the, the poor and the rural will pay a huge, huge price for if we overstep <clears throat> reality, all right. And so so at some point reality is going to kick in and we're going to make poor people poorer and we're going to make farmers and rural people poorer while, you know, suburbanites can uh, put solar. I just saw the other day some clown putting solar on the north side of his house. Why is he doing that? Because the north side is what faces the street and he wants his, he wants all his neighbors to see he's got solar. Right. So it's like they don't care. It's virtue signaling. Mm. So uh, suddenly we're going to need two, three times the electricity. How come the El Salvadorians have figured this out and we can't? Right. Yeah, that's the big question. Well, it seems like to me, um, Andrew Yang was was on to something in his in his presidential run. Right. I mean, these guys, he's preaching, preaching to the choir. He's going to you know, invest $50 billion um, into the development of molten salt reactors, and we're going to get them all online by 2027. But obviously, you know, Andrew Yang's not the president um, and wasn't close to becoming the president. But, you know, something like that, um, after speaking with you, makes makes perfect sense. I mean, perfect sense. Sure. Uh, you know, Andrew Yang and a lot of people like him, you know, uh, Andrew Yang Senator Manchin, Senator Lamar Alexander, 
you know, uh, uh, Cory Booker. Um, you know, we have a lot of folks that really wanted to deploy nuclear in a big way, you know, and Andrew Yang specifically wanted to deploy thorium molten salt reactors. And, you know, uh, their staff usually are the ones who shoot that down. But I just want to give them encouragement that, you know, the vision of deploying a thousand molten salt reactors is not uh, at all out of the realm of possibility. You know, China has just spent 20 years uh, deploying at least one coal plant a week for the last 20 years. Guess that what that is. You know, 20 years times 50 weeks is a thousand coal plants. So China built a thousand coal plants in 20 years. And from 1900 to 1970, we built 3,000 uh, power plants in this country. So it's, it's a sort of scale that we need to think in, and it's utterly doable. We can build these nuclear facilities in factories. We can ship them to a site on a truck. We can use, the, we can use fuel in them that is non-proliferating. And we can take old coal sites and turn them into nuclear sites. We can take old fuel oil sites and turn them into nuclear sites. You know, the, that is a huge, huge benefit. We can, you know, you want armed guards, fine. We'll employ some people to walk around with guns. You know, if you want more security, but what are you securing? You're securing a naturally safe fuel. Uh, the waste profile well, we don't have to have a waste profile because we can make molten salt reactors that burn spent nuclear fuel. You know, if you, you know, it's these problems aren't problems. We've known how to fix them for 70 years. And, you know, we, we have the solutions before us. We just need to uh, employ them. And I'm afraid the U.S. and Canada and Europe are going to be on the sidelines, you know, arguing over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and arguing over, you know, so-called safety regulations while other countries solve their problems, you know. Egypt needs power. Turkey needs power. You know, Indonesia needs to stop burning coal and they need nuclear. Malaysia needs power. India needs, you know, thousands and thousands of megawatts of power. You know, Mexico needs power, Brazil, the global south, the developing nations are not, uh, they don't have the luxury of, you know, wringing their hands and crying over, you know, fractional, fractional, tiny, tiny possibilities and, you know, black swan events. They need to pull billions of people out of poverty now. And they're going to do it, you know. So we can either get on board and have a say in how it's done and make sure it's done safe, safe, safe. Or we can watch as the world, you know, passes us by while we're still burning coal like Germany's still burning coal. You know, I mean, we're, we're going to look like clowns telling the rest of the world to get clean, you know. <laughs> while they're the ones actually getting clean and we're still burning natural gas and coal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we talked about complacency and, you know, th those other countries have to find new ways and they have to innovate and that's what they're doing. Um, so yep. the U S um, at some point, I hope that we, we get to the point where we're, we say, you know, we can either innovate or die. Um, let's innovate and let's <laughs> yeah. look at these, these things like molten salt reactors. Um, that can actually, you know, provide energy, you know, clean energy for us, and it can scale to, to the spot that we need it to scale. Um, yeah. Because if not, I mean, we, we talk about it, we talk about it in business, um, like I just mentioned, businesses can either innovate or die, and I would hate for the U.S. to fall in the same trap of just becoming complacent and letting um, all of these other nations take over. So, but John... Um, I appreciate you coming on. I, I have learned so much from this conversation, um, and I know that all the listeners will as well. Um, it's a pleasure having you on and, and having you spread your expertise. 
um, and experienced in this industry. So I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on the Green Hour. Well, Preston, uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your questions. And uh, uh, I, uh, I hope I did give you a little bit of uh, insight from the other, you know, other perspective. Uh, and uh, thank you for having an interest in nuclear and rare earths and critical materials. It's, it's super important that, uh, as you said, you know, we, we need to, uh, we need to get back our mojo and innovate and show the world that, you know, we haven't, we haven't lost it, that we can still do great big things in this country. And, you know, we can still be the light of the world. And, and, uh, I, I really believe that that's why I spent my life doing this. So, you know, and, and seeing guys like yourself, you know, pushing the rock up the hill with me is, uh, you know, very, very uh, great. So thank you again, Preston, for, for allowing me to speak to you and your audience. It makes my day. <laughs>